Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you are a guest, we do welcome you. If you would be opening your Bibles to 1 John, we're going to continue the lesson that we began this morning and try to finish it up, 1 John, the first chapter. And we do want you to keep in mind the couple's retreat because this week is the deadline to sign up. And so uh, we hope that we'll have a great turnout in that and we hope that it'll be a great encouragement for each other to get to know each other better. We hope it'll be a great strength to marriages as we can grow, as we take time thinking about uh, some direction from God and be and have that encouragement together. We do look forward to Philip preaching next Sunday evening. We look forward to the meeting that will take place afterwards that... Uh, the input from the uh, youth as well as their parents and the volunteers. And so be prayerful about all of that and we look forward to seeing the great things that God has planned. Also beginning next Sunday will be a gospel meeting at Legardo and they will have a different speaker each service. And uh, Hugh Fulford, a great, tremendous preacher. He is the preacher there on a regular basis. That is Brett Fulford's father. And uh, he... We want to encourage you, uh, if you can, one evening next week, uh, to be sure and take the time to go over there and worship with them. It'll be at 7 o'clock uh, beginning next Sunday and then through Wednesday. And so if you have the opportunity to do that one of those days, be sure and do that. It'd be a great encouragement to one of our sister congregations just down the road a little bit, down 109. The fact that Jesus would come and dwell among us really gives us keen insight to what the Christian life is all about. In other words, maybe you have seen where someone gives you instructions about something, but yet they give you no diagrams, they give you no pictures, they give you no illustrations. It's so much harder to understand it when you don't have those things. And think about if someone told you about the Christian life, but yet Jesus had never come to this earth, and Jesus had never walked. But it's not that way. He did come to this earth. He did take on flesh. And men and women, boys and girls, were able to see. They were able to hear. They were able to handle Him, if you will, to interact with Him. And because of that, what is recorded and the understanding that we can have is so much greater because He took upon Himself flesh and blood so that we could take upon ourselves eternal life. Isn't that amazing? He left the eternal realm to come and be one of us so that we can leave the essence of physical flesh and become like Him. What a blessing. It reminds me, of back in 1915, of a doctor, Dr. Evan Kane. He'd been in medicine for 37 years. He had performed many apodectomies, apodectomies, and he, at 4,000 of them, he had performed. And so he decided that there could be a local anesthesia that would create less stress on a body. But his problem was, as he searched for volunteers, no one would volunteer. Their fear was that once he started the surgery, the anesthesia would wear off and the patient would be in severe pain. And finally, finally he found the patient that would do it. 
And so that patient was prepped. And he, as he had done 4,000 times, began a surgery, except this time the anesthesia was local. And as he had thought, and as many of his medical peers had thought, it was very successful. You see, what was so surprising about this was that that patient's name was Dr. Evan Kane. He literally performed surgery on himself. Now, if he came to you and said, you know, this is a good procedure, you'd probably be much more likely to believe what he says because he actually went through that and he performed it himself upon himself and he can tell you the pain. And even though that's not an exact parallel to think about what Jesus did, to think about instead of Jesus sitting upon a throne in heaven and saying, mankind, this is the way I want you to love your enemies. This is the way I want you to submit to the heavenly father. This is how I want you to live a daily walk. Instead of feeling so distant and so separated, we can see it much more clearly. Let's look at this text again here in 1 John and let's read together beginning at verse 1. And as we read this, think about the fact that God's love sent Jesus and gave us life eternal. And in that life eternal, we have fellowship. And that will lead us right into the next point. But let's read the first few verses to make sure that our minds are back on the same page with just some brief comments along the way. 1 John, the first chapter, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, that's Jesus from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Remember, Jesus is that word of life. The life was manifested. In other words, it was shown to us and we have seen and bear witness. And now the apostles are experiencing all this. And now John is saying, and we declare to you that eternal life, which was the father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Why? That you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And so that brings us up to the point where we were this morning, how the apostles experienced all this so they could declare it to us so that the fellowship that they had with Jesus, we too could have with Jesus. And so the eternal life that, that was promised, we can have that eternal life. And it's a beautiful thought to think that we're close to Jesus. We're close to the Father, Abba Father. Now, what's the result of this? Look in verse four, powerful little short sentence here. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. John, why are you writing this? Isn't it wonderful whenever authors tell you why they're writing? Remember, in the Gospel of John, he also, toward the end of it, told exactly why he was writing the Gospel of John. Because he wanted to prove that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And now he says, I want to tell you why I'm writing these things in 1 John. I want your joy to be full. I think too oftentimes we look at joy in the Christian life as just something that might happen and it might not and there is no firm or faithful expectation for it. And friends, that's simply not biblical. That's not faithful. When we think about the fruit of the Spirit, which characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit are you comfortable saying, oh, that one's not important? Surely we would say all of those characteristics are very important. Well, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Remember, Love, joy, peace, patience. 
Joy is something that Christians are to experience because they have eternal life and they have fellowship with the Father. This evening, I want to ask you, what is the difference in your joy now as before you become a Christian? And for all of us, it ought to be a drastic change. And if not, I would challenge our lukewarmness. I really believe that one of the things that makes us miserable as Christians is whenever we're half-hearted. Because we know enough that it violates our conscience that we're not serious. And that, that lukewarm, that in and out, as, as uh, one fellow used to say when I was in school, he would say, some people have just enough religion to make them miserable. Listen, if we're wholly dedicated to God, we have a joy that it may not be tied to the emotion of laughter, but it is a deep inner joy. It is a peace that passes understanding. Turn back with me, if you will, to Acts the second chapter. In Acts the second chapter, I'd like us to just notice this word joy as we quickly scan a few of these passages in the book of Acts, and let's notice what this joy is tied to. In Acts the second chapter, can you imagine the dilemma that Peter and the apostles found themselves in? They're about to stand up and preach about Jesus of Nazareth to the ones that crucified Jesus. Now, sometimes it's interesting to me that we look at situations like that, and if we're not careful, we'll say, Oh, we're going to hurt their feelings because this is going to make them feel guilty. Friends, what is it that brings real joy? Isn't it interesting that in, in 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter and in verse 10, we, lead, we learn that it is sorrow that leads us to repentance. And once we lead to repentance and we turn our lives around and our sins are forgiven, what's the result of forgiving sins? Well, what we're going to see over and over in the book of Acts, it's joy. I think about John Thomas this morning in the late service when he prayed at the Lord's table. He prayed that we have mixed emotions at this time. And one of the things of sorrow was our sin. And one of the things of joy was a resurrected Lord that gives us sorrow from sin. Friends, the very idea of saying, I'm afraid to talk about somebody's sin I'm afraid that, that they, it might hurt them. It's supposed to hurt them. It's supposed to hurt you and I. But that's the only way we can cycle around to joy. You and I cannot know eternal joy until we know the sorrow that our sin has produced. And so here Peter is going to stand before a crowd that has just crucified the Messiah and they are unaware of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And so instead of tippy-toeing around he boldly proclaims to them their act and notice who responded. Look at 41. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized. Now you know back up in 37, they were pricked in their heart and they cried out, what shall we do to be saved? So do you think this gladness here of receiving was that they were laughing? No. The gladness here is tied into joy that they are thankful that they finally have learned the truth and they were able to have sins forgiven. Now, was there joy that surpassed that immediate reception of gladly receiving the word? Absolutely. When you go down, read verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking the bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. What do we read there? We read the Christian life and the gladness that it was bringing. 
whenever they were going into each other's house on a daily basis and whenever they were enjoying each other's fellowship together and the simplicity is the singleness, their hearts were of a kindred spirit. They weren't living partially for the world and, and partially for the Lord. It was simple to them. They were Christians. Look with me, if you will, to Acts the 8th chapter. Acts the 8th chapter, we have the persecution scattering the Christians out of Jerusalem. And Philip goes to Samaria. And when he enters into Samaria, Acts the 8th chapter in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. Look in verse 8 and see what the result was. And there was great joy in that city. Why? 12 explains what we've just read. Verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. What happened here? There was a dual emphasis preached by Philip. We've got to preach the kingdom of heaven. We have to preach Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven on this earth is the church. We've got to preach the church and we've got to preach Christ. We leave either one out and we do not bring the true recipe of joy. And when those individuals in that city learned about Christ and His kingdom, they were baptized. And the result was, it changed the city. I love verses like this and then thinking about the song that we sometimes sing, you're the Lord or you're the God of this city. To think that as Christians, this congregation is to make a difference in this community. I know we don't have any way of answering this right now, but I think in the other side in eternity, God could show us. But still, let's think about it for a moment. How different would this community be if the Mount Juliet congregation did not exist? If close to a thousand Christians did not have an influence in this town, how different would it be? How different would our schools be? How different would our workplaces be? How different would our communities be? Friends, we ought to bring so many things into our environment, but one of the things that we ought to bring is joy. It ought to be a better place to live because Christ and His kingdom has been emphasized among these people. Go just a little deeper in the book of Acts, the 8th chapter. Acts 8th chapter, we see Philip being told by the Spirit to go down in 35 and, and he meets up with a eunuch and he preaches Jesus to him. And then notice in 38, they commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water and he baptized him. And then in 39, they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord called Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. But notice the result. He went on his way rejoicing. And you remember in Acts the 16th chapter, we have the Philippian jailer. And you remember... He had seen how these men conducted themselves in prison that night, but he didn't understand anything except when the earthquake opened the doors, he thought that they had escaped, and so he was ready to commit suicide, probably thinking that a personal death would be much more merciful than what his superiors would do to him if they found out that he let jailers uh, go. And so at that moment, they were able to talk him out of that. And he didn't kill himself, but yet what they had, he wanted. Now pause there for a moment. If you were being kept in prison for being a Christian, would your example be such 
that if you were in the midst of an earthquake like that in the middle of the night and, and you all came on equal terms, if you will, in the middle of the night, would a jailkeeper look over and say, because of the way you conducted yourself with joy and with peace, would a jailkeeper come out in the middle of the night and say, I don't know what you guys have exactly, but I want what you have. That discourages me in a way, and it challenges me. Because how many times when we are mistreated, do we immediately show everything except peace and joy? But yet in the scriptures, we see Christians living a life of joy because, back to 1 John, because they know they have eternal life and their fellowship is with God. And one of the things that we learn in being fellowship with God, that just as Christ suffered, we must suffer with Him also. And so it was no surprise to suffer. And so the idea was, okay, if you're mistreating me, I expect that because that's what it is to have fellowship with Christ. And so as I suffer, I want to suffer as Christ suffered. I, I don't want to strike back. I want to turn the other cheek. I want to offer mercy to you, even though you're the one that's bringing injury to me. And what was the result of that? That kind of joy was contagious. Later on that night, when these people were baptized, look at verse 38 in Acts 16. When they brought them into the house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Isn't it interesting of this, these few stories we flip through, how the individuals rejoiced because they were saved. The individuals would get together in each other's house, and they would have meals together. Listen. I know that when we look at ourselves and we see several hundred, it's easy for us to lose focus of how important it is for us to get into smaller groups and have fellowship. When we talk about outreach teams, there is a very real biblical model for why we have smaller groups getting together and in and out of each other's homes. When we talk about get involved in a Bible class and then that Bible class says we're going we're gonna to eat supper together on Thursday night of this week. Why is it important for you to do that? Or maybe there is another ministry or another situation where, where you're being urged to get into smaller groups and you, and you say, well, that's just what they want me to do. Flip through the pages of Acts and see if it's just what we want you to do or see if it's what you need. Because that's what God's people were doing from the very beginning. They became Christians. They rejoiced and they enjoyed getting into each other's lives. That's why we try to push like this couple's retreat. Why? Do we need it as, as husbands and wives? I don't know of a marriage here that can't benefit from concentrating more upon God's plan of marriage. But is there something beyond that? Yes, there's something beyond that. Is We need to be with each other. We need to interact with each other on a Friday and a Saturday and get to know each other better because that is a part of the joy of being a Christian is that we have eternal life, but it's not an island. It's not isolated. We have fellowship with God and with each other. As we think about this joy, I'd like for you to turn back to Luke the 15th chapter. And we don't have a slide for this, but I'd like for you to turn back to Luke the 15th chapter. If I say to you, 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, you probably think in your mind, a passage of a resurrection. If I say to you, 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, you probably think, a chapter of love. If I say to you, Luke, the 15th chapter, what comes to your mind? 
I hope that all of us realize that, that this isn't just an opinion. This, I mean, this is what it is. It is an entire chapter of joy. It's literally where God says, I want to show you what you're supposed to rejoice about. And then he takes it a step further. He says, I want to show you what the heavenly host rejoices over. And so when we think, now keep in mind while we're reading this in this text, we're studying tonight through 1 John, the first chapter, where he's talked about Jesus coming so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And he says, these things that I write to you, that your joy may be full. Not a little joy. No, well, I'll tell you what, since I've become a Christian, it's okay. And John says, no, I'm writing this to you so your joy would be full. What is the response that we as Christians are supposed to have when someone is saved, when someone is restored? What is the response that the heavenly host has when someone is saved or someone is restored? Let's just scan through a few things here. You remember Luke, the 15th chapter, we have the, the hundred sheep and one goes astray. And then finally he is found and you see in verse five, when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulder, what? Rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. And so you, you see this picture where the Lord says, do you see what it's like? Are you getting together in each other's homes and saying, let's just enjoy the fact that we're Christians? And then what's the next level, if you will, that joy? Look at verse 7. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who need no repentance. And then we read the story about the coins and one of the coins was lost and the widow hunts for it or the woman hunts for it. And notice in nine, and when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I found the peace which was lost. Look at 10, we see the heavenly host. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What have we learned just from these two stories? When there's salvation on the earth, God in heaven is rejoicing and even the heavenly host is rejoicing and being in the presence of those who rejoice. And then we have the story of the two sons and one is a prodigal and one goes out in righteous living and when he decides to come back home, notice in verse 20, he arose and he came to his father and when he was a great way off. Now, is his father going to do things that reflect rejoicing or is his father going to do things that doesn't? Is, is the father apathetic? Is the father, oh, okay, another son's come home. That's good. We're, we're glad. We'll, we'll make a brief note of that in the bulletin. We're glad that they've come home. What's the father's response? Look at verse 20. He arose and he came to his father, and, but when he was still a great way off, the father saw him and he had compassion. And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. Do you know what Jewish tradition says? Jewish tradition says that older Jewish men never ran. It was not dignified. And here is a Jew, Jesus Christ, telling a story where the father in this story is represented as the heavenly father. And he says, that son is seen. And you know who sees him? A great way off, it's the Father. You know who runs? Can you imagine neighbors? Run? What? Why is he running? What, what's wrong? Why is he running? Oh, look, he's, he's falling on someone's neck. And, and the Greek here for kiss is kiss much. He just continually kisses the young man. Who is that? 
and people get closer. And they hear the father cry out to this, or about this dingy man. Let's get a robe, let's get a ring. Let's put shoes on his feet. Kill the fatted calf. And what does he immediately do? He invites friends to come over and rejoice with them. And then the brother, the elder brother, he comes up from a distance. And look in 28, he was angry. It would not go in. Therefore, the father came out and pleaded with him. And the older son gives his excuses about how righteous he believes that he is. And the father's killed this fatty calf for the younger brother that's been so ungodly in his living. He says, you hadn't even killed a goat for me and my friends. And notice what he says to him in 31 and 32. Son, you are always with me and I'll always have and, and all that I have is yours. It was right. Now, please get this, brethren. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. It's right. Think how powerful it is whenever Jesus says, this is right. He's looking at a son that doesn't want to participate in rejoicing. It's that simple. And he says, we have to rejoice. Why? Jesus, why does the Father say we have to rejoice? It is right that we rejoice. You know, several Wednesday nights ago, we had a few elders here from another congregation. And we had a couple of baptisms. And after the baptisms, there was singing of celebration and rejoicing. And the songs continued until those two individuals that were baptized came out. I know you've seen it many times, but let me go ahead and say it. And one of the elders walked up and, and put their arms around them and introduced them to the congregation and shared the great joy that we are experiencing and said a prayer of thanksgiving to the Heavenly Father of the joy acknowledging the joy that the Father is experiencing. And afterwards, everyone came up front and, and celebrated with them. And one of those elders said to me on the way out, he said, what I saw tonight, that's the way it should be. You can rest assured that in our congregation, our eldership will be talking about this. There really should be joy. And all I could say to him was this passage. It is right. It's wrong not to. Something is wrong with us when we do not rejoice over the things our God rejoices in. And John writes an epistle, and he can't come out of the epistle. Five verses without saying, let me talk to you about eternal life. Let me talk to you about the fellowship that you're going to have. I'm writing this because I want your joy to be full. Why? Because Christians are to realize that what they have is a life, eternal, changing event that is a walk that carries them through this earth and into eternity. And friend, 
It doesn't just have to be the day that we're baptized. I want to challenge you tonight as you put your head on your pillow. I want to challenge you to think back to the day that you were baptized into Christ. And I want you to think about what it meant to have your sins forgiven. And to know that as you stand before the God on the day of judgment, you can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I want to challenge you tonight, before you go to sleep, to rejoice. I want to challenge you to really think about what God is offering us and to truly, truly be happy. If we miss the joy, we must have missed the sun. And if we miss the sun, we've missed everything that is real. Tonight, can you really say, I rejoice in the things that God rejoices in? I hope we all can. If you're not saved, you're missing out on the biggest thing to rejoice about in your life. You'll never regret doing what God says is right. It's just the right thing to do. If you're a believer willing to repent of sins and confess before men, won't you be baptized this evening into Christ for the remission of your sins? Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and along the way you've lost the way and you can't find rejoicing right now that the Lord speaks of because there's a separation there that has created grief in your heart and know that it's created grief in God's heart. But also know that God is the Father that's looking down the road right now and you know what will make him happy. You know what is right. He's waiting. And you take a step, and he'll run a mile to meet you. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.